Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. We are the place among the Freightways family of podcasts, which we call Freightcasts, where we drill deep into the market for oil and diesel because you can't get too far in a truck without either of those things on board. We also drill deep with our guest for the week. This week, it's Finch Fulton. He recently joined autonomous vehicle company Locomation after coming out of the federal government, and he's going to be focused to a large degree there on the intersection between autonomous vehicles and government policy. He's going to join us in a few minutes. But wow, we've got a lot to talk about in the diesel market. We just hit 15 weeks in a row of increases in the DOE EIA diesel price. That ties a record going back to the start of this data series, which goes back to 1994. The price during that time is up about 50 cents in the streak, and it goes back to November. And it's not like it's just petering out. The increase of more than seven cents this week was the largest jump among the 15 weeks. And now we're confronted with a diesel market that has the potential to get pushed even higher. First of all, there's a continuing surge in commodity prices across the board. Copper, higher. Aluminum, higher. Tin is undergoing a crazy market so crazy that the Wall Street Journal wrote about it. Soybeans, near a record high. So what oil is doing isn't crazy. And S&P Global actually had a chart the other day that showed that oil is lagging most other commodities. But obviously, there's a big new factor here in the diesel market, and that's the Texas storms and the Texas cold snap. It appears to have taken out about 12 or 13 refineries in that state, shut down because of the weather. The fact is, when you get this cold, which is really rare in Texas, refineries down there aren't always uh, built well to operate under these conditions. Then you throw in the fact that even getting electricity into the plants becomes difficult, and you can see why there are all these shutdowns. There is no doubt that there's a drop in demand from that region of the country, but that's not going to be enough to offset the drop in diesel output from those refineries. Gulf Coast refineries in Texas process about 4.2 million barrels a day of crude, according to the latest data. Figure about a third of that is probably diesel. That, so that would be about, oh, I'm doing this math off the top of my head. Never a good thing. You know, so that's about 1.4 million barrels a day of diesel demand. There is no way does the drop in diesel demand in Texas come up to about 1.4 million barrels a day. And not just Texas, really, the, the whole region. What we don't really know is how long it is going to take to bring that refining sector back online. You know, there has been talk that these low temperatures in Texas were the lowest in 32 years. That would put it back to 1989. And I remember the cold snap of that year right around Christmas. It was just brutal down in Texas. It was brutal up in the north, too. And what I remember after that is somebody telling me that a lot of refiners down there after that cold snap, their plants just didn't run correctly for months. They were a little off. It took a while for a true normalcy to return. Now, there may have been technological upgrades that make them better to handle the cold weather, but you really have to wonder about what's going to happen this time. Inventories of distillate, including diesel, went into the cold snap right about where they should be when you look at it in terms of day's cover and the five-year average. So there isn't a giant surplus to cushion any significant loss of supply. At least there isn't a big surplus here. The cold snap wasn't two days old, when the media that covers oil markets started reporting that European refiners were loading up ships to send them over to the U.S. to take advantage of the strong diesel market. That is always the way it happens in oil. And that's why price spikes in one part of the world inevitably come to an end by moving material from another part of the world. Let's hear it for greed. You've also got a loss of crude supply out of Texas Permian Basin that might have reached 4 million barrels a day. Nobody knows for sure, but that's whatever it is, it's a lot of oil. Wells should start to come back online soon, but this is not going to be something that just snaps back. 
Some of these wells may have been damaged by the cold. So that's going to tighten the supply of crude oil that goes into those refineries. But the fact is, of course, those refineries aren't going to be at full anyway. Either way, you're talking about a loss of supply in a market that is pretty much back to where it was price-wise in January 2020 when the pandemic was first hitting. We did get news this week that Saudi Arabia is increasing its output after having been tightening the spigots for more than a year to keep the market in check. What the Saudis actually do not want, what they never want, is that the price of oil gets so high that it incentivizes a lot of production that creates the seeds for the next decline. But the Saudi increase of 1 million barrels a day doesn't kick in until April, so there's no immediate relief there. It's fascinating to see how the price of oil has been gradually climbing for months and is now starting to get a lot of attention in the broader media and economic discussion. A lot of truckers have an advantage. They just get to pass that higher price through through a fuel surcharge. Usually it works, but there can be short-term mismatches. If there's any time for that, it's probably going to be now when surcharges can have a tough time keeping up with the market's volatility. We're going to move on now here at Drilling Deep with our guest for the week. His name is Finch Fulton. He is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Policy at the U.S. Department of Transportation. But now, more interestingly, he's moved over to the private sector and he's joined Locomation, which is one of the many companies, but maybe one of the more advanced companies doing autonomous vehicle technology. And Finch has joined Locomation as the Vice President of Policy and Strategy. So, uh, Finch, really excited to have you here today and hear what's going on at Locomation. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here and thrilled to be here representing Locomation. So can you give us an, an update? Let's, let, me give a, let me give my own little status report on Locomation. Just almost a year ago that we wrote um, that you were doing a pilot project with Wilson Logistics uh, to use uh, autonomous vehicle technology. And then I wrote that story. And then I found that we did a story in the fall that the, uh, that the, uh, the test had been successful enough that it was expanded to a, a lot bigger. Really, I think like the whole company, well, you know, over a thousand vehicles. So mm-hmm. how is that? That's certainly, I know when I wrote it last year, I thought that this was one of the most ambitious things that I was seeing in autonomous technology. Uh, how's it working out now? You obviously the test must have worked out well because you expanded it to the larger university of, of, of Wilson. How are things going? Well, being that I'm two weeks on the job, I'm thrilled to already take credit for the success they've had before I showed up. But uh, clearly, it's been successful. They've expanded it to 1,100 units, and uh, they're on a couple-year plan deployment plan to get these on the vehicles, equip the vehicles, and the systems integrated so they can be deployed on the roadways. Uh, so everything's progressing well. The teams are getting meshed together, and uh, things are moving forward. Okay, very good. Yeah, I, I knew I, I had to hit you with that question, but I knew you were new to the operation. So, but when I when I got the announcement about your hiring, when I when I looked at it, the first thing I thought was Locomation needed somebody with government experience to navigate what government is going to do with autonomous vehicles. Is is my theory correct about that's what's going to be your one of your main charges here at Locomation? Yeah, absolutely. So I worked for the last four years under Secretary Chow at the U.S. Department of Transportation. I somehow got the tremendous luck of being able to work on the innovation portfolio, which focused on automated vehicles. So I got to work with companies and business models through all sectors of automation and through all sectors of transportation. And the thing that makes the most sense and the thing that we will see first deployed on the roadways are automated vehicle technologies for trucking in particular. The market's there, the use case is there. The way the technology works will work first on these highways uh, exit to exit, hub to hub type models. So this is really the area, you know, 
of all automation that has the biggest impact that will be here in the near future. So I think, you know, given that I spent uh, the last four years at the U.S. Department of Transportation tying together to the department's automated vehicle efforts and from there led the entire federal government's automated vehicle efforts through AB 4.0, bringing together 38 federal entities working on automated vehicles, I, I hopefully am able to bring a lot of value to locomation. Uh, being able to navigate those 38 federal entities and work with all of our state and local partners. But I know for me, I'm thrilled to get to join because this is the use case among the six major use cases that really will have the biggest impact um, in the near term and, and so, frankly, in the long term. So what's further ahead, the technology or the government regulatory framework that the technology is going to have to work within? It's really funny because, so if we look at the six different use cases, it's different for each. So I'll talk specifically about automated trucking. And there's this big idea that the regulations need to catch up to the operations. And what we're seeing is, one, yes, that's absolutely true. But two, many of the world leaders in this technology are looking at this and saying, you know, we really hope by the end of the decade, we will have something that's truly ready to go on the roadway, not just in a test or deployment, but, you know, fleet-wide deployments. And so if you're looking at where the federal reg, uh, regulations are and the state regulations, they are really engaging with this technology, having these demonstrations like the recent Smart Belt Coalition demonstration, demonstrating convoying across a number of different states. They're learning now and they're able to find areas that they need to upgrade their systems, upgrade their approaches, and to make sure they can communicate about how they're ensuring the safety of these technologies as they're being deployed. So it is moving in lockstep. Uh, we don't need any sort of uh, major legislation to be passed because the regulations are already in place that are being developed. And I think that, you know, who knows if they'll be ready at the exact same time the technology is ready, but they are moving side by side. Um, and so when we do get ultimately legislation that provides long term certainty or when we get these rules finalized, I think the technology will be ready to take off. But right now, it's, it's a little bit of a going, uh, you know, side by side with each other, learning from each other. What is the framework for states and federal government working together? I would think that because of the technology, because of what we're talking about, we're talking about trucks across multiple state lines, even on just one trip. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have one state or a couple of states that are laggards in their regulations, they can really kind of foul everything up, I would think. So, I mean, is this the kind of thing where you've got the looming specter of uh, federalism fights over who's got the regulation that matters most, state versus uh, federal government? Yeah, so this is where it comes in to the approach towards federalism. The United States is a, a nation that has embraced federalism, and it makes a lot of sense for a number of different reasons. You have, uh, you know, the saying, let a thousand flowers bloom. Each state can take their own approach and it can gauge how they want to interact with these technologies based on their comfort level. California is different than Texas, which is different than Massachusetts. And that's OK. We're learning about these technologies. We're making sure we figure out different ways to approach this in different regulatory environments that work. You can't stop with it. You can't start with a top down mandate saying, well, Massachusetts figured out they wanted to do it this way or D.C. figured out they wanted to do it that way. So you will all be told how to engage with this technology. People want to be able to talk with their local officials about the type of operations that happen around them. You know, the example is you can set speed limits locally. You don't want to have to write to your member of Congress to say, I want you to change the speed limit. That's not how our system's set up. And so as we look at the way these automated vehicles can operate, 
Yes, we work with our state partners. They can inform the federal efforts. When we figure it out, we can take steps to make sure that there's uniformity across the country so that you don't have widespread problems with deployment, but we can still allow some flexibility on the state and local level, especially as these technologies are developing, to make sure that when we do figure it out, it's a way that works for everyone, that provides flexibility while still providing certainty to those deploying the technology. It's okay for us to grow together in these in working with these technologies. You know, I pose that question in a kind of a negative sense about, you know, one or two states screwing anything up. But but there's also the possibility that, that that a couple of states may really embrace this and they just get ahead of everybody and they become the leaders. Are you seeing any of that? Are, are there any states in particular that you've seen where you thought, boy, they really understand this and they've come up with some terrific ideas on on how to implement this technology? Look, Arizona has been out front trying to embrace this technology and to make sure that they are on the forefront. You see the same with Texas. They want to be the nation's hub and where this technology comes in. The whole, uh, you know, smart belt of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, they're all working together, breaking down those state barriers so they can be a hub where all of this technology is deployed first. And by working together, they're able to figure out what problems there are. You have other states that take a more skeptical approach, and that's okay for them to figure out how this works for them. Ultimately, you don't have to have the federal government showing up immediately and preempting everybody. We can learn from Arizona, from Florida, from Texas, from the Rust Belt or Smart Belt Coalition, uh, and we can learn you know, what not to do from some other areas. Uh, and we'll see that ultimately in how this technology is deployed and when we can start seeing the benefits to safety, to efficiency to utilization of assets uh, in some of these states that are quicker to embrace the technology. What's the most pressing regulatory step that needs to be taken right now? If you were going to give a list of, let's say, one to five, the things that should be tackled uh, immediately or quickly or a top priority for the federal government or the state government or state governments. Yeah. So, you know, of course, I'm talking specifically about automated trucking, but uh, the rulemaking about the safety framework for the operations of these vehicles. I think for all the six use cases, major use cases, that's gonna be the thing that everyone's reaching towards, figuring that out. And what uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration recently put out was a safety framework, the first of its kind, for how they would regulate the operation of the vehicle. So not just the parts on a vehicle and how they work together, but how do you measure the operations of the vehicle to ensure safety if you're removing the driver from the operation. That is gonna take years. It's not ready yet. It's a first approach that said, you know, if you have all of these standards that exist, here's how you stack them together to make a safety case that shows that you're going through all the process and engineering, um, as well as technological advances to deploy these vehicles safely. There is still minimum three years of work on that if everyone in industry agrees on that. Uh, And they don't yet because we're still maturing uh, and people are taking different approaches to this technology. So it's okay for these systems to mature. But ultimately, that's going to be the rulemaking that needs to be finalized before you have widespread deployment of these technologies, because I don't think you're going to get the confidence of the public, the confidence of industry or the confidence of Congress to allow those deployments without that sort of framework in the long term. We can do a lot um, when we have humans in the vehicles, uh, if you don't remove the humans completely out of the vehicle, um, all of these operations are still very possible for automated trucking, but there are still roles for the human driver um, that will need to be thoughtfully approached. Um, 
as this technology develops. And so uh, the, the rulemaking that I mentioned, plus one on uh, the human role in these operations by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration on, um, you know, how do you, if you do truly remove the human driver, um, how do you do inspections? How do you work with law enforcement? How do you make sure that the, the um, load is securely uh, harnessed down to make sure if anything happens, if the roadway is bad, you know, your load's not shaken loose? How do you do a lot of those commonsensical things that a truck driver is trained and ready to do? But if you remove the truck driver and you're in the middle, you know, of the desert of West Texas, who's going to be doing that? And how do you make sure that the rules are in place for that? That's going to be the second piece of uh, the puzzle that we have to put together if you, if and when the human driver can be removed from the system um, for the driving component of the vehicle. So I think those are the two big things. Does the change in Washington government matter? I mean, you mentioned Elaine Chao. Obviously, she's no longer the Secretary of Transportation. Based on your title, I'm assuming you were a, a political appointee. You're, you're gone. Yes. Does, does this matter at all? Or is this, you know, is this the kind of thing that's really kind of so technologically driven that doesn't really matter who's in the White House or who's serving as Secretary of Transportation. Yeah, so elections matter. Um, there's no two ways about that. Um, and but what we're hearing from the new team and from Secretary Buttigieg, you know, they have some of the same focuses. And the reason why everyone's so interested in this technology is because of the safety advances they can make, because of the efficiencies for the system they can make. It's the economic impact this can bring to our nation, and it's the fuel efficiency savings and the emissions savings that can be brought about this technology. None of that's partisan. And frankly, the technology is so new, there haven't been any partisan lines hardened on this. So this is a great area of opportunity where we can focus because of the benefits that this technology can bring. So, you know, there's a big question, is it going to be the rulemakings that I talked about that are very commonsensical, that have been, you know, based on the industry developed consensus-based standards? Those will probably move forward, but it's going to be the bigger questions, you know, if Secretary Buttigieg follows through and his focus is on climate, on equity and on union jobs. And, you know, President Biden has said he wants to be the most pro-union uh, president there's ever been. Is it actually going to be questions about hours of service and the definition of a driver? And is it going to be these labor issues that are actually driving the agenda? Not anything about the technology. And the answer is, I don't know. Um, we will have to see. But certainly you can see with challenges in courts, with the you know approach that they're taking, it may very well be the things that we don't anticipate that drive the agenda for automated trucking, not the rulemakings that, you know, we provided some regulatory certainty about. So that's definitely going to be something to, you know, keep watching and to stay engaged with. What's the first thing on your agenda? Your, your policy is, is under now your, your remit at locomation. So what are the first things that your, uh, your new employers are expecting you to do? Well, some of it is, uh, I, I tell you what, it's a lot easier to find the bathroom and to do a lot of the first day type activities when you're stuck working from home. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of it is making sure you're tapping the right resources, talking to the right people, joining the right organizations so you can be a part of the conversations. But look, you know, Locomation has a driver centric model. If, you, if you're talking about developing a system where you can have a human still part of uh, the convoy you know, ultimately one driver can be on duty um, with others potentially off duty in the sleeper berth with these convoys going down the road. That has a big impact on the trucking jobs of the future. And if you're generating more income with this, it can potentially generate more income for the driver itself. And the USDOT came out with a report that estimated that 300 to 500,000 future trucking jobs can be impacted by automated vehicle technology in the coming years. 
So if you develop a human-centric model that, you know, make sure you work with these drivers who are trained, who are experts, who can handle these, you know, random things that happen that a machine's not ready for, you can really make a better, uh, you know, quality of life, a better job for truckers, keep them in the system. You can handle a lot of these unforeseen consequences much better for decades to come. You're not waiting for technology to solve everything. So I really think that, you know, making sure people understand the difference between locomation's model and others is going to be key for me because it does make sense. You get the safety improvements. You get the utilization improvements. People get to use their assets more. You still get emissions reductions because of, you know, fuel efficiency gains. You get all of the benefits, but by including the driver in the approach, you can deploy years and years and years faster. You talked about the, uh, the 1,100 units we sold. Those can be deployed in the next couple of years as soon as we get them on the trucks. We don't have to wait for all of these rulemakings to be finalized and for the technology to be ready. As they said, by the end of the decade, we're able to learn, we're able to provide value for the customers now, and we'll be able to get on-road experience with these automated systems as they develop so that we can be ready to deploy uh, self-driving trucks in the future uh, as well. So regulatory-wise, uh, you, you don't see any barriers to the, the deal that you've got with Wilson Logistics being implemented? They can, once this equipment is installed, you think this is going to be ready to go? There'll be some state issues uh, that we need to work through to make sure um, we're in compliance with state laws, depending on where we're deploying. Um, obviously, there's still some differences in each state. We do need to make sure we're compliant with everything around hours of service, um, which I think we'll be able to do, uh, especially as our business model develops. Um, we have some example, examples of exemptions that have worked. Um, but ultimately, you know, these are things that are surmountable challenges that there are paths forward. Um, so, yeah, I think that I think that we'll be able to achieve our goals within the next couple of years. As soon as we get the technology ready, we'll make sure that the regulatory framework's ready, too. I'm going to ask you a question that I probably should have asked early on, which is for you to describe the locomation technology and what it does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I would characterize this in a couple of different stages. Um, you start by just getting the technology on these trucks. And so you can have a lead truck and a convoy of, let's say, two to three trucks to start with. Um, the drivers in the trucks, um, the front driver would be on duty and, you know, you're going down the interstate. The secondary and third driver first would be able to get in a convoy so they can have that eight to nine percent fuel savings, um, you know, essentially drafting off of the lead truck. Um, but over time, you'll be able to develop it so that, you know, the second or third driver, they're on the interstate, they're on a long haul trucking route. Uh, the second and third trucker can turn off, go on their sleeper berths, turn on the trucking system, lead drivers handling any issues that they come across. The second and potentially third driver are either handling paperwork, handling other duties, or they can be in their sleeper berth um, resting up and not using their hours of service. They can go to a you know hub or a truck stop, switch out, have a different person take the lead, um, and then the driver that was initially the front driver will be able to go use their hours of service um, and continue the haul. Um, and so then not only are you able to have two to three drivers that are able to have continuous operations instead of having to stop and make sure that you're taking um, driver fatigue into account and hours of service into account, they're able to continue operations uh, throughout. And ultimately, as this develops, you can have uh, potentially look at removing the second and third driver. Uh, they can handle loads of their own. And in that case, they'd be able to handle two to three times the amount of cargo, you know, and if you're looking at 
the way they generate revenue, they're able to take part and get more of that revenue. And ultimately, they can even look at different hub models so that they would be able to work through these uh, main logistics hubs to return home every night so that even long distance truckers that are engaged today, you know, can have a better quality of life because we can set up a system to where they can lead these convoys to certain points and then go home every day. And by matching some of the freight demand with the cargo, we're able to create a model over time when we get to that fourth level um, where we can really have great impacts to not only the pay of truck drivers, but their ability to go home each night and their ability to have more control and understanding and to be able to plan around the routes that they would be taking. Um, you know, and because we have an estimated shortage of you know, 60,000 qualified truck drivers and that numbers look to increase, we're not talking about truck drivers losing their jobs. We're talking about each truck driver being able to have a greater impact to the overall system and to be able to carry a greater load and to make more money off of that. So I think it really makes sense in a lot of ways that some of the other, mo other models don't because it has that driver-centric approach and because it grows over time. Um, and so I think our great advantage is that we can start deploying today and gaining those lessons learned and getting those fundamentals in place so that you know by the time others are ready to deploy at the end of the decade, we've already got a lot of systems in place and lessons learned. Oh, yeah, this is longer than we usually go, but it, it, you can't have a conversation about autonomous vehicles without asking the calendar question. You know, what's what's the forecast? Where where will we be three years from now? Where will we be five years from now? Yeah, well, and leave it to me. I still haven't shaken off my government background. You give me a microphone, I'm ready to talk. Um, uh -huh. So, yeah, so I'd say three years from now, you know, the example using autonomous trucking, you will see companies like Locomation deploying on the road, um, having a human driver involved and some of these higher levels of automation system following and convoying will be able to deploy that and be getting the lessons learned some other competitors will be having uh, limited deployments or limited routes where under certain scenarios they're able to operate um, they may be looking to pull uh, human drivers at some point but they're only able to do it under certain conditions certain weather certain times of day on certain routes so we're not talking widespread deployment but you will see uh, headlines being generated by some of these other trucking companies. Uh, and then if you're talking five years, you're looking at an advancement of that. The regulatory structure will be more defined. We'll have more government-led deployments so that we get lessons learned and generate real data about you know the role of the human versus the role of the machine and making sure you can account for all of the things that truck drivers do so well that machines aren't ready for. And then if you're looking more like seven or eight years, that's when you may start seeing these, uh, you know, the world leading companies be able to think about, you know, are you able to remove the driver, have them focus on warehouse operations, logistics operations instead of the driving operations. Uh, so I think that's more likely to be uh, the timing for that sort of operation. Well, I don't want to, I'd like to have you back before three years or five years to put you on the hot seat to see whether your projections <laughs> worked, out, worked out. So it, it, it'll be before then, I, I assure you. We want to thank Finch Fulton, he is a former U.S. Department of Transportation official. He's now the vice president, the recently named vice president of policy and strategy at Locomation, which is a Pittsburgh-based autonomous vehicle company. Finch, thanks for coming in today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you have been listening to Drilling Deep here on here on the we are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freight Waves. You can find us on all the major platforms for podcasts. I'm your host, John Kingston. Please join us again. <laughs>